Well, uh, if you're just joining us for the first time today, we're studying the life of Moses. And uh, we come today to what is arguably uh, the most important day in the history of the nation of Israel. Uh, the day that God established the Mosaic Covenant with them on Mount Sinai by personally speaking the Ten Commandments to them. Uh, the story is recorded for us in Exodus 20, which we've included in your bulletin. I'm not going to read it because we're going to go through it, and uh, we're going to look at each verse as we go along. Now, uh, covenant isn't really a word that we use very much in our culture anymore, except when we talk about people entering into the covenant of marriage, which is actually quite helpful, because if we want to understand what God is giving His people in the Ten Commandments, we need to begin by thinking about how vows work in a wedding. Vows are not the source of the love in a marriage. Uh, the love precedes the vows. And the same thing is happening here. Moses summarizes it in Deuteronomy 4, 33-37, where he says this, Did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. Out of heaven he let you hear his voice, that he might discipline you. And on earth he let you see his great fire, and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire, because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them, and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power. What Moses is reminding the Israelites of is the simple fact that God's love for Israel preceded their commitment to keep the Ten Commandments. In fact, it went all the way back to his relationship with Abraham and the promise that he had made him, which we just talked about when uh, we were baptizing. Um, I, I, I looked at you and got Seth stuck in my head. <laughs> Ford. I was about to say Seth. I was like, well, I did, we didn't baptize Seth. Um, Ford. Earlier, right? We were talking about that earlier, that for, after, for 450 years, God kept this promise. Um, and the same is true here. Um, why then is God giving them the Ten Commandments, right? If God already loves them, why give them the commandments? Well, the same reason that you take vows in a wedding. Uh, Chuck DeGroote puts it this way in the quote that's on the front of your bulletin. He says, the whole intent of God's law is to restore people into loving relationship with God and with each other. Uh, the vows reciprocate the love. They protect the love and they explain how to enjoy it for the rest of your life. If I, I did your wedding, in fact, one of the first vows that I asked you to take was this one. Will you have, let's say, you know, I'll use Holly and I. Will you, Holly, have Mark to be your husband? To live together in holy matrimony. Or sometimes we say the covenant of marriage. Will you love him, comfort him, 
honor and keep him in sickness and in health, and forsaking all others, be faithful to him as long as you both shall live. Which is essentially what God is asking in the first commandment. Will you forsake all other gods and be faithful to me as long as we both shall live? Look at verses 1 through 3. Then the Lord spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Do not have any other gods besides me. That phrase translated besides me uh, in the original Hebrew actually means to my face. And so what God is essentially saying here is, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Do, Do not have any other gods to my face. Which means God feels about human idolatry the way you would feel if your spouse brought their side hustle to your kid's birthday party. Right? That's, you would feel embarrassed and angry about it. Right? Because they're so visibly cheating on you in front of your face. And in front of the face of all those who love you. What God is explaining here then is that anytime we turn a good thing such as our job, or our net worth, or our body, or our kids, or our spouse into the ultimate thing that becomes the source of our significance and safety and satisfaction, we're cheating on him. Anytime we do that, we're cheating on him. Because one of the surprising truths that the Word of God reveals that we would never have imagined is that our Creator wants to be spiritually married to us. He puts it this way in Jeremiah 31. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. And so what we're seeing here in the Ten Commandments is God marrying himself to a people who are going to cheat on him. That's what's happening here. And so what then the Ten Commandments are is they're an invitation to intimacy with God. God's inviting us into a special covenantal relationship with him. God's inviting us to be married to him. And here's what it looks like to be married to God. They tell us how to reciprocate God's love and how to safeguard our unique relationship with him so that we're able to enjoy it all the days of our lives. The first four commandments are about how God wants us to live privately, and the last six are about how God wants us to live publicly, which is uh, why the second commandment begins this way. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You see, from God's perspective, there's really only two ways that you relate to him. You're either hating him or you're loving him. That's it. There's no middle ground with him. And what he's explaining in the second commandment is, don't objectify me, right? I don't want you to shrink me down to my favorite attribute that you like the most, right? I don't want you to just say, well, my God would never fill in the blank. I don't want you to use that kind of language. 
because you're shrinking me down. You're making a caricature of me, right? When you make a caricature of someone, you take some attribute that theirs and you inflate it, right? You make it a big thing so that they look absurd. And God's essentially saying in the second commandment, do not turn me into a caricature. Instead, let me give myself to you in all of my complexity. Let me give myself to you the way I am. And the way I am is I'm a wild lover who is also deadly dangerous to cross, right? Don't, don't shrink God down to, oh, my God is only a God of love. My God is only a God of moral purity. My God is only a God of power. My God is only a God of unconditional acceptance. When you do that, God says you, you've, you've turned one part of his attribute into the whole thing. And when that happens, it provokes his jealousy, Part of the complexity is that God's love for him causes, us to, causes him to get jealous anytime we start giving to others what belongs to him alone, which is, again, completely appropriate in a vowed relationship, right? If your spouse begins to have an inappropriate text relationship with a coworker or a neighbor, it should make you jealous. It should make you angry. And if it doesn't, Something's wrong with your love for them, right? You lack significant and sufficient love for a vowed relationship if you don't care when they begin to wander from you. This then explains the nature of the third commandment. Verse 7, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Understood in its relational context, then, this commandment isn't merely forbidding using God's name as an expletive, which is interesting all by itself. Like, why, why is it that, you know, Jesus Christ suddenly becomes an expletive, right? Why, why is that? Um, but what it's, what it's forbidding is hypocrisy, right? What this is essentially saying is, don't say that you are in a personal, spiritual marriage with me. Don't take my name as your God if you don't actually intend to love me with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and all your strength, if you don't actually intend to follow me seven days a week, don't bother coming to church because I see through that religious facade. Don't be somebody who honors me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. If you're going to take my name, don't take it in vain. Take all of me. Don't just take my name. Take the relationship. Take the whole that I'm offering to you. The fourth commandment then is an invitation to spend regular time with God, resting from your daily labor because you want to be with Him. You want to be like Him. And you trust Him to provide for you the other six days of the week. Verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord God made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy. In wedding vows, right, this is analogous to the section where I say, do you take this person to be your spouse for better or worse, for richer or poorer in sickness and in health? Uh, prioritizing weekly worship and weekly rest as an expression of your faith in God's love and gracious provision for you is like having a 
weekly day apart with your heavenly spouse, right? It's choosing to make certain sacrifices in order to invest in the relationship. It may cost you, right? It may cost you promotions or, um, you know, consumption. Uh, there may be people who aren't following Christ who get ahead of you because they work seven days a week, but the long-term benefits of investing in this relationship are worth any of the short-term sacrifices that God asks you to make. Which then brings us to the public aspects of our relationship with God. And the first place that God wants our relationship with Him to bear fruit is at home. Verse 12, honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Humans are kind of unique in that we enter life instinctually deprived, right? We don't come in innately knowing how to do anything. We come in helpless. And so God created parents to love us to life. Their, their job is essentially to tell us who we are and how life works. Now, if you're born into a situation where your parents are either unwilling or unable to accomplish this task, you quite literally fall apart, right? Emotionally, we call it an attachment disorder. Physically, we call it failure to thrive. But there's something innate in humans that you need committed parents who are going to love you to life by telling you who you are and how to live. Likewise, uh, you know, you and I need that. The Israelites needed that. Um, they would not have been experiencing this moment where they're actually literally able to see God and hear Him speak to them from heaven if they hadn't been willing to honor their elders and their parents who told them to follow Moses on this cockamamie plan to get out of Egypt, to go through the Red Sea, and to enter the wilderness where they were going to become the people of God. And so their courage and their decision to submit to those in authority over them made this moment of a real-life encounter with the living God possible for them. Likewise, you and I wouldn't have ended up here today if our parents hadn't gotten something right, right? Just because our parents didn't get it perfect doesn't mean that they didn't get it partially correct. So how then does God want us to honor them? Well, he wants us to honor our parents by celebrating the, the things they did get right while forgiving them for the things that they didn't get right. I, I like Henry Nouwen's definition of forgiveness. He says that forgiveness occurs when we give others permission to not be God. And so essentially what that means in this place is you give your parents permission to have failed you, right? In some sense, God has designed parenting to be planned obsolescence. Your parents are your starter parents. But they're supposed to fail you so that you will seek and find the Lord who wants to be your father when you seek him with all your heart. Um, your parents, if they're in Christ, and when you get to heaven, will be your brothers and sisters. And so in some sense, the plan all along was for them to not be enough. They were to awaken in you a desire to be parented in a way that exceeded their ability to do it. And to honor them is to forgive them for not being God and to learn how to let God parent you himself. Which leads to the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. Uh, interestingly enough, the reason that this follows on the heels of the previous one 
is that the first murder did in fact take place in a family, right? The, the very first family, Cain murdered his brother Abel. And, and the same is still true today, particularly if you understand God's definition of murder. Uh, Jesus puts it this way in Matthew 5. He says, you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. You see, it turns out that God forbids murder in large part because a murderous heart always reveals an idolatrous spirit. Um, anger comes from a block goal. The more significant the goal is to you, the stronger your reaction to being blocked is going to be, the bigger the anger. So if you're angry enough to want to kill someone, even if you're too wise to actually attempt it, then what you're dealing with is an idol, right? Because this is the way idols work. That we choose them because they work for us. They promise us something. They offer us life. And we think, yes, this is how I'm going to get life. And then eventually they demand blood. When, when something comes between us and their ability to perform for us, we're willing to sacrifice image bearers, people who bear God's image, on the altar of this created thing in order to get what we want. So whether it is a spouse or a job, or respect, or control, or a substance that you want to consume, some created thing has become more important to you than the image bearer of God who stands between you and that thing. Hence, road rage, abuse, um, contempt, hatred, physical uh, attacks. And this is also then why God gives us the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery, verse 14. Just as God made the family to address our loneliness, God also invented marriage. And just as God wants us to honor our parents, He also wants marriage to be honored by all. Well, how? How does God want us to honor marriage? Hebrews 13, 4 tells us, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral, and the adulterous. Well, why? why? Why does God care so much about marriage? Well, because um, marriage is designed to reflect God's lifelong commitment to us. Right? Marriage is meant to image how God wants to relate to us. Which is why Jesus said in if, I mean, Paul said in Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing with water through the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. You see, God's design for marriage is to be a lifelong, covenanted relationship where one man and one woman forsake all others and commit to ministering to one another till death do them part, even if things get really sideways. That's why of the seven marriage vows that we do in a Christian wedding, four are talking about when things go poorly, right? For better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, until death do us part. 
And so essentially what God is saying to us is, hey, listen, you need to protect marriage because marriage is meant to image me. And that includes if you're single, right? You shouldn't be stealing from someone's future spouse by sleeping with them now, right? Essentially what you're doing is you're taking the benefits of marriage without investing in the costs of marriage. You're, you're stealing from someone who's going to eventually be called to commit body and soul to this person, which leads very naturally to the next commandment, the eighth one. You shall not steal, verse 15. Um, this is analogous to the for richer or poorer part of a wedding vow. Um, God has always promised his people that one day you will inherit the whole earth. That when Jesus comes back, what's going to happen is God's going to recreate the planet and he's going to populate it with his resurrected people who are sinless and are prepared to enter into all that God intends you for. In some sense, this life is your internship. Uh, you're not even yet in the city that you're meant to dwell in eternally, whose architect and builder is God. That's coming. And because that's coming, you can experience what Paul calls the secret of contentment. You can let go of trying to get your most life now. You don't have to squeeze everything out of this life. You're going to inherit the whole earth. And so instead, you can trust God in plenty and in want. Paul puts it this way in Romans 8. He says, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Um, your best life is coming, but this doesn't have to be it. This can be your good enough life. This also then frees us from the need to be manipulative. Hence the ninth commandment. Verse 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, most of us think, God, that's sweet. I finally got one of these commandments I've nailed. I have nailed that one. I'm good, right? Well, until you listen to how Jesus describes it in a way that is particularly hard for Southerners to obey. He says this in Matthew 5. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil, right? Which means you just got to tell people the truth. Right? Hey, what are you doing tomorrow night? I don't know. I'm going to kind of wait until I see if I have better options. You know, I mean, I'm not going to say that, right? I, you know, yeah. I, hey, you know, do you like what I'm wearing? Eh, you know, it's not your best look, right? Which we would never do that. That's so anti Southern. Um, and so, in some sense, I'm not saying be, you know, ruthlessly blunt, but, but I am saying, uh, you know, don't uh, manage all of your relationships by uh, holding all your cards close to your chest. Um, you got to kind of put your cards on the table. you got to love people enough to give them power to make choices instead of making those choices for them. Which brings us to this final commandment. Having spoken about our public actions and our public words, God finishes where he began by going back into our hearts. And he says this, verse 17, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. And here, of course, is the kicker, right? Because what God is revealing here is he's exposing our hearts. And what he's revealing is the desire for an unlawful thing, the desire for a forbidden thing is itself sinful. When you desire a sinful thing, 
it is revealing that sin is in you already. It resides in you. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Romans 7. He said, What then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. So if you want to put teeth on this, we have a name for covetousness now. We call it Instagram. And you check it every day, right? And you scroll through it. And there's an AI whose job it is to figure out exactly what you covet and push that to you every day. So right now on my Instagram feed, I have an enormous number of pictures of trout, right? Where it's like, oh, look at this guy catching this monster trout. And I'm like, oh, I'm coveting my neighbor's vacation right now. I'm coveting my neighbor's sweet giant fly rod and that monster brown trout that he's catching. But that's not all that Instagram pushes to us, is it? Right? It pushes all kinds of things to us. Because Instagram knows what we don't want to acknowledge. And that is that we have hungry hearts. And if we're not attaching the umbilical cord of our souls to Jesus, we're going to attach it to some created thing. We're going to try to pull life out of it and make it feed us. Now, the Israelites were wise enough to know after they heard these Ten Commandments that they had a major problem. And the major problem was this. There was no way they were going to keep their end of the bargain. There was no way they were going to actually be faithful in the face of this. If this is what faithfulness to God looked like, they were pretty much sunk. And that's why they responded this way. Verse 20. Moses said to the people, Do not fear. For God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. See, the people of God were like, we got this big problem. And what was the problem? Well, the problem was that they asked for this solution back in verse 18. It says, now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning, and the sounds of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid, and they trembled, and they stood far off, and they said to Moses, you speak to us, we'll listen, do not let God speak to us, lest we die. They were like, God, this God who we've encountered, he's holy, and we're not. He's righteous, and we're not. And his very nature destroys sin, like sunlight destroys darkness. We've got a darkness problem. We can't do this. We need a mediator. We need someone who will stand between us and God. And Moses said, okay, I'm willing to serve in that role. And God said, I'll accept that temporarily from Moses. But it won't be permanent. How do we know that? Well, we know that because Moses told us that at the end of his life. In Deuteronomy 18, reflecting back on this event, Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see his great fire anymore lest I die, the Lord God said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them and I will command them. See, what the people of God needed was they needed someone who could perfectly keep the commandments and 
who could perfectly atone for their failure to keep the commandments. A, a God who could be light in their darkness while enduring the darkness of God's wrath through their sins. They needed somebody like that. And God said, Moses will be kind of like an appetizer of him. But Moses wasn't going to be him. Moses was going to need that himself. Instead, Moses explained, one day God will send you from among your brothers that person. Listen to him. Well, when did that person show up in the history of the people of God? Well, the Apostle John said that person showed up in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He says this in John 1, 14, and then 16 through 17. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now to understand the significance of this statement, you need to know this, that what John is claiming is that Jesus himself is the Ten Commandments personified. Remember how the Ten Commandments began. Exodus 21, God spoke all these words saying, and then he went through the Ten Words. That's what the Hebrews called the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words. And what John says is, the Word of God became flesh, and he dwelt among us. He came down here as light in our darkness. That's what he came to do. Why? Because the law had come through Moses, but we couldn't keep the law. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. Jesus came to keep the Ten Commandments for us so that he could earn the right to forgive us for not keeping them. That was why he came. Think about Jesus' life. Commandment one, you shall have no other gods before me. Well, in the garden, what did Jesus pray? Father, not my will, but yours be done. Second commandment, you shall not make for yourself an image. Jesus explained that the Son can do nothing for himself. He only ever does what he sees his Father doing. And he lived that so perfectly that the author of Hebrews could say of Jesus, he is the exact representation of God's being. He's God's image among you. What about the third commandment? Do not take the name of your Lord God in vain. Well, on the night he was to be betrayed, in his high priestly prayer, Jesus said, Father, I have revealed your name to those you gave me. What about the fourth commandment? Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Well, Jesus went out of his way to do what was necessary on the Sabbath to bring people to restoration. He was, he was actually persecuted for healing people on the Sabbath. He was crucified for what they thought was breaking the Sabbath when in fact he was fulfilling the Sabbath by healing people on that day. Well, what about the fifth commandment? Honor your father and mother. Well, Jesus honored his father by remaining in his house when he was a 12-year-old and the first time he went to Jerusalem and staying in the temple. He honored his mother on the cross when he said to John, hey, this is your mom now. I need you to take care of, of my mom. Mary is now your mother. What about the next commandment, thou shalt not murder? Well, Jesus refused to call down his angel armies on the cross, even though it was his right to do so, dying for his enemies. What about you shall not commit adultery? Well, Jesus was so sexually safe that women who were in adulterous relationships felt free to talk to him about it. 
whether it was the woman at the well who was living with a guy who wasn't her husband or the woman caught in adultery who responded to his question, does no one condemn you? With no one, sir. And they said, neither do I condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. He was that safe for women to be around. What about the command uh, not to steal? Well, the Apostle Paul explained that Jesus, though he was rich in heaven, became poor for your sake so that in him you might become rich. He came down here and chose to dwell among us as an impoverished human being. He could have, he could have been born to any family in the world, but he picked a backwater family in a rural part of the Roman Empire to affiliate with because of his great affection for us. Well, what about the commandment not to give false testimony? Well, in the only trial we ever see Jesus in, he's on trial for his life. And he doesn't say a word. In fact, Pilate declares him to be innocent in the face of the false accusations he's facing. And what about the command not to covet? Well, Satan offered him a crown without a cross. He said, hey, if you'll just worship me, I'll give you every kingdom on the planet. And Jesus said, no thanks. I'm here to do the will of my Father and worship him alone. And why did he do that? Well, he did it because he knew that he needed to enter the darkness that the Israelites needed to be delivered from in order to pay sin's penalty, deliver us from sin's power, and one day remove sin's presence from the planet. John explained it this way in 1 John 2. He said, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. And so hear God offering you this invitation today. The Lord God spoke these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And remember how to do that. The word became flesh, says John. And dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you came to seek and to save the lost. That you came to fulfill the law so that you could forgive our failures. We pray, Lord, that you would grant us the humility necessary to receive grace upon grace from you and the power through your Holy Spirit to keep your commandments. We ask in your name. Amen.